Hello, and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I will be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. A note to regular listeners, this episode went on a little long, and it's been a little tricky to edit, and my employer expects me to work for them rather than to do this full time, and so as a result, I have cut this episode into two episodes. I think and hope you'll find them both rewarding and enjoyable, and so now we'll proceed into the introduction of our excellent guest, Peter Joseph. Our guest today has been often mentioned on the podcast, and I have typically referred to him as a Renaissance man of the arts. Author, actor, artist, auteur, and more, Peter Joseph's books include The Wrong Reader's Guide to Cormac McCarthy, All the Pretty Horses, Adventures in Reading Cormac McCarthy, Cormac McCarthy's House, Reading McCarthy Without Walls, Liberty Street, Encounters at Ground Zero, The Way of the Trumpet, What One Man Said to Another, Talks with Richard Selzer, and The Wounded River, which was a New York Times notable book of 1993. His films include the award-winning Liberty Street, Alive at Ground Zero, Shakespeare in New York, Hell, Bard Talk, A Few Things Basquiat Did in School, and Acting McCarthy, The Making of Billy Bob Thornton's All the Pretty Horses. As a painter, his McCarthy-related exhibitions have been shown throughout the world, including, and I don't know if I'm saying this right, uh, Peter, but just go with it, Lulio, Sweden. Coventry, England, Sydney, Australia, and here in the States in Debrea, Kentucky, and in El Paso, and in Santa Barbara. As an actor, he has played, among many other roles, the character of White in the Sunset Limited at the Westerner Theater at Center College in Danbury, Kentucky. He's a frequent keynote speaker for the Cormac McCarthy Society, and he currently lectures on film for the Frick Estate Lectures at Nassau County Museum of Art on Long Island. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, and welcome to New York. <laughs> a little bit different way to visit New York than in the past. And I think my feet will not hurt as much, but I'll be a little disappointed in some of the scenery. Maybe I don't know. We'll start the way we always start. And I kind of know the answer to this and you've written about it, but it's a great story to hear. So how did you come to discover Cormac McCarthy? Well, let me first uh, thank you for inviting me and also for doing this series. I've heard all of the episodes. It's kind of like having a conference of the Cormac McCarthy Society, but in discrete sections and uh, during a global pandemic, it's really nice to be able to tune into all these great people. I know at least two thirds of them, and you've had some of them on multiple times. Diane Luce, Marty Priola, uh, Steve Fry, Nell Sullivan, Stacy Peebles, just some of the best people in the field. I really appreciate that, and I'm sure your listeners do. And it's not easy. Well, thank you. I never really did have the opportunity to discover Cormac McCarthy. That adventure was denied to me. I had Cormac <laughs> McCarthy discovered at me by Rick Wallach. Rick, I'm sure you'll be speaking with him. For those of your listeners who don't know him or don't know of him, Rick is one of the prime movers in McCarthy scholarship and also in McCarthy enthusiasm. He's edited more collections of essays than anyone, often co-edited. I think you've worked with him on some of his, what he calls, case books. Right. He certainly organized and co-organized more conferences than anyone, nationally and also internationally, and also privately on a person-to-person -person basis. He's been a kind of P.T. Barnum of McCarthy <laughs> enthusiasm. He's the Gideon's Bible of McCarthy studies. Rick had a friend who asked him whether or not he had been reading McCarthy, and Rick said, I'm really not that interested in her work. I've never been drawn to it. <laughs> His friend said, no, it's this guy, Cormac. You, you really have to read him. And part of my long-standing friendship with Rick has been a kind of back-and-forthery based on, you haven't seen this, you've got to see it. You haven't read this, you've got to re read it. So this was a spur for Rick. He found himself at a railway station in Australia, and he found a copy. Uh, it was a Picador paperback. That's the UK 
paperback of Blood Meridian or The Evening Redness in the West. He was taking an overnight journey. He bought it. He read it overnight. And he was whelmed over by it. <laughs> There's an expression that I learned from a surgeon author, Richard Selzer. You mentioned that I had done a book of talks with him. We did quite a few projects. I, I published a, a book of his uh, correspondence with me, a brilliant man. Uh, at one point in the intro to the book of conversations, I said that to walk with Richard Selzer is to walk with civilization mm. because he's both an artist as a writer and also a man of science, a surgeon up at sure. Yale, New Haven. And uh, we were discussing his work. And he said, do you remember the scene in Hamlet where Hamlet and Horatio chance upon the funeral of Ophelia and Laertes is expressing his grief? He's distraught and crazy guy that he is, Hamlet is jealous. Yeah. Laertes is being more expressive than he feels that he should be and that he had the right to be. And so he cries out something like, I don't remember the exact phrase, who is he whose grief would turn the stars into wonder-wounded hearers? Hmm. Wonder-wounded hearers. And Richard Selzer said to me, you know, that's my goal for my readership. And it's interesting that he should say this as a surgeon because he had written so much about the wound and, you know, how we can be wounded by so many things, uh, including great art. And so he said, yeah, I would love for my readership to be wounded with wonder when wow. they read me. That's what happened to Rick on that railway journey. He was wounded with wonder. And he returned to the States with the conviction that everybody that he knew needed to read Blood Meridian, and everybody <laughs> that he did not know needed to read, needed to read Blood, Blood Meridian. Meridian. <laughs> yeah. And Scott, that includes, because I saw it happen, waiters, waitresses, gas station attendants, <laughs> clerks in stores. It was a, a mission. And that's the way Rick is about uh, great literature, great film. He really is a born educator. And in my case, he absolutely refused for me to fudge and say, well, I can't find a copy. I'm so busy writing and painting and we're doing this, this show now. And I, you know, that he uh, had a spare. And that's something that Rick does when he loves a work of literature. He buys spares just mm. to give them out. So he sent me his spare copy. In fact, uh, it tells you a little bit more about Rick. If I give you an anecdote, Rick uh, had been living in Northport out here on Long Island. I remember sitting in his den with John Zepich when Notes on Blood Meridian was just Xeroxed pages that were stapled to a manila folder. Wow. And uh, when he moved down to Kendall in South Miami, I drove down with a sidekick of his, Joe McGinnis. He was also moving down and was going to be living on the grounds and kind of act as a caretaker. While I was hanging these huge pieces, I mean, it filled the entire house. A house, by the way, and this is perfect for, for Rick. He <laughs> moved into a house that had belonged to the writer Harold Robbins, who wrote, <laughs> you know, the carpetbaggers. Carpetbaggers, exactly. Yeah. In between Harold Robbins and Rick Wallach, it had been uh, in the hands of a drug cartel. So they found uh, what in those days we called a submachine gun buried on the property. <laughs> and at one point he said to his friend Joe and I, we're going to go to the carpet store and we're going to pick up some carpets that Rowena, that's his wife, had ordered. Let's go get, take the ride. You'll help me load them. Well, the carpets weren't ready. And as we were leaving the store, he saw a young woman she looked at it as if she might have been a grad student, you know, roughly that age. And she was having her lunch break and she was reading a paperback. Rick was intrigued. He was fascinated that this young woman was reading this book while she was having her lunch. I don't remember what it was. He had a little bit of a chat with her. And then he went into what his friend Joe always called rhino mode. And rhino <laughs> mode is when Rick gets an idea and he's rolling. 
and he's going to do something and he's excited and it's uh, the 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 phrase fits more to when he's in motion <laughs> on foot but now here he was driving the car back home and when he gets into rhino mode in the car there's almost a kind of physical Tourette's where his right hand flies out to express the excitement that he's in almost like a little minor <laughs> series of seizures and he had something in his head so we get home and he says to joe and i i want you each to pick three books and he took us to the shelves where he keeps extras of his favorites so he chose blood meridian and something else i'm trying to think it might have been geek love which he also adores or gravity's rainbow you know one of his favorites Right. I chose three. Joe chose three. We got back in the car, drove directly back to the carpet store. We each presented our three to this young lady who was still having lunch, and we left. We left. And I guarantee you that he probably never spoke to her again. <laughs> didn't need to talk to her again. It wasn't a come on. It wasn't a you know. It was. It was. Right. It was an. It was an act of pure edu educational yeah. generosity. And that's Rick. And that was the spirit in which he sent me a spare of Blood Meridian. Yep. Peter had to read this book. And he called me like every two days, you know, uh, did you read it yet? Yeah, where are you? Did you read it yet? You know, uh, and I said, Rick, you know, come on, I got an exhibition. see where you were or, in the book. You know, I'm yeah. rehearsing this film with Ray and, oh, no, you got to wait. Did you get to? Did you get to where he goes into the tent? And, you know, and uh, I said, no, not yet, Rick. You know, you got to give me a little bit of. A little leeway, but that was how, that's what I mean by um, he was discovered at me rather than, you know, that <laughs> I discovered it. Absolutely. I did record a conversation about his discovery of the book. I think it's called uh, Bloodbath, and it's in my first collection, Adventures in Reading Cormac McCarthy. And it's called Bloodbath <laughs> because I had thought that I might be making a film about the making of Blood Meridian. This was when Tommy Lee Jones was working on it and so i just thought good conversation about literature doesn't have to be in an armchair it doesn't have to be that ken burns setting with the nice lamp in the background and so i put him into a bubble bath in the menger hotel in san antonio right which is where john grady cole goes to see his mom as i recall his his one request is he had to have a, a saxophone, saxophone and a rubber ducky yeah and a rubber ducky. But exactly. what's what's so interesting and why I would recommend that conversation to your listenership is that he had no notes. He's taking a bath. He's in a <laughs> hotel room and he's absolutely brilliant about yeah. the discovery of the book, about the book itself. And that copy that he bought, it stayed with him for decades. And in fact, I have it here in the house because in the long run, uh, one of the two times when I was really privileged to have breakfast with McCarthy, I um, asked him if he would mind signing it for Rick. And when I showed it to, to Cormac, I remember I said something like, just in case you've ever wondered whether people are reading you carefully, because every square inch of that book, every page is yellow highlighted, it's underlined, it's marginalia beyond readability almost. And uh, in fact, I wrote a piece about it, which I think is in the current Cormac McCarthy journal. It is. If it's still out. An extraordinary document. And the reason he doesn't have it is that now that it has Cormac's signature on it, and I understand this, it's almost too powerful a talisman mm. for Rick to have his favorite book signed by its author and inscribed to him. It's like he's needed at least a decade to be able to get himself into a, yeah. a state of mind where he can deal with just having it back in his possession. That's yeah, Rick. It is. Now, how did you first come to meet Rick Wallach? But what's the what's the story there? Just New York knockaround guys or no, I had a, a theater company called Victory Rep. Uh, which we kept going in a variety of locations, some of them in New York City, some of them out on the island. In some cases, we toured. We formed it. It was myself and a couple of other actors and uh, my pal Kevin Larkin, who I also collaborate visual art. And it was Rhonda, Ray, Kevin, and myself. We formed this theater. 
And when we moved it out to Long Island, to the town of Great Neck, which figures in uh, the Great Gatsby, Great actually. Gatsby, right. Yeah. So I was writing original work. I was doing adaptations. I adapted Thorough. I played Thorough in a, in a piece called uh, An Hour at Walden. I wrote a piece about uh, Edgar Allan Poe called A Telltale Poe. We were doing Harold Pinter. We were doing Chekhov. In other words, we were doing real repertory, and we were trying to do work that was not Neil Simon. Uh, right. Nothing against Neil Simon. He's a great writer. It's just that there was so much of that. We wanted sure. to do work with a more literary foundation and, uh, and also originals. I was writing a hell of a lot of plays in those days. But we also had... So Rick was coming down to see these things. And we had a segment, I think it was once a month, called Poets Aloud, A-L-O-U-D. Hmm. And this was a chance for Rick to get up and read these poems that he had working on. And so he loved that about the theater. He loved the literary aspect of the theater. And it was a small space, must have been maybe 40 or 50 seats, perfect for the kind of work that we were doing. So he became an avid supporter of the theater. Now, this was back in the probably the early to mid 80s. So uh, I had known Rick for almost 10 years when he discovered Blood Meridian. So we already had this relationship of you've got to read this right uh, and, it, and it went in both directions i loved making discoveries rick reminds me of harold bloom and that he's the kind of guy who you more or less expect to have read everything right you know so i would find these obscurities that you know i, I knew would appeal to him i'd get him on the phone or do you know this no 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 what is it and he'd go out and get it and so uh, on his part it was Blood Meridian. He was wild about it, and he still is. He still is, and all and all of McCarthy's work as well. Um, but Blood Meridian is definitely the the star at the top of that Christmas tree in in his estimation, I believe. So I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot. And I've already a lot has already come up. But to my imagination, when you open up the dictionary and you turn to the page with New York in it, there's a lower definition that says New Yorker. And there is your picture, Peter. You just, to me, are the, the consummate New York. You know it inside and out. If I recall correctly from one of your books, you talk about growing up and your dad had been like a bookie. And in some ways, the, the Hudson and East Rivers flow through your veins and you just, inside and out, you're a New Yorker. And so one of the things that's fascinating to me is as I started as a young man reading Faulkner and eventually wrote a dissertation on him, there's a part of me that could understand how people would appreciate the virtuosity of the language. But I always wondered, do you have to be from the American South to truly get Faulkner? And there's a part of McCarthy that is so much about the rural South and West, perhaps not Sutri, but most of the other books. In fact, all the other books are about the rural part of the country. And so what is it you think that got you so fascinated in him? Is it just a virtuosity of language? What else is there that made you just dive so deeply into McCarthy? Well, the language is a big part of it. I always say that everything that you receive from McCarthy, everything that we all talk about, character, story, theme, place, it derives from his ability to write these exquisitely beautiful English sentences. Mm. More than that, what I feel that he has most in common with Faulkner is that he can somehow manage to inform these sentences with, I can only call the infinite. It's funny you mentioned virtuosity because uh, Marty Priola, who you've also spoken to and who published the ebook version of, uh, of the Wrong Reader's Guide to All the Pretty Horses, uh, we were texting back and forth very, very late. And at one point I said, Faulkner has killed McCarthy criticism. I just wish they would shut the F up about Faulkner. There should be maybe a 10-year moratorium where no one mentions Faulkner. I think I said that because I was looking at the wonderful book that you and I are both in. It's Steve Fry's Cormac McCarthy in Context that he right. published with Cambridge. And yes, there you have a wonderful essay on the South. There's a piece on McCarthy and Faulkner. There's a piece on McCarthy and Hemingway. Get the Flannery O'Connor. I said to Marty, it's this infinite that they have so much in common. And in a sense, it's wrong to think that the language is in service of the story. 
the infinite in their work is so important that it's really the story is in service of the sentences. I'm a big believer that civilizations rise and fall on the quality of their sentences. I think you're absolutely right. When you were talking about this, I was thinking about the opening, probably the most taught Faulkner story, if it's not barn burning, uh, A Rose for Emily. And it has that amazing line in the second paragraph when it's talking about where her house is and how she's died. Now she's laying in the cemetery. And, and the quote is, and now Miss Emily had gone to join the representatives of those august names where they lay in the Cedar Bemuse Cemetery among the ranked and anonymous graves of Union and Confederate soldiers who fell at the Battle of Jefferson. And just that term, Cedar Bemused, which in a sense doesn't mean anything, but in another sense means everything. And you're, you're absolutely right. I think where people often go wrong with both these writers, and even if someone who seems to be the polar opposite and really is not like Hemingway, is it's so often the language that is the most important thing in the plot and even characterization is secondary to that. Well, it's funny. I'm not a religious person, but there are times when you need to invoke the gods or you know some kind of a god figure for rhetorical purposes. But speaking of God and the gods, what's really interesting about your question is how many different ways there are to answer it. I mean, yes, the linguistic virtuosity, that's one way. There's another way, which is, I could say to you, Scott, you look hale and hearty, but I'm going to make the assumption that you've not spent all that much time harpooning on a whaling ship <laughs> out of Nantucket or Sag Harbor, and yet you're still tempted to delve into Moby Dick. Absolutely. Uh, I yes. could go another step and say, I'm going to take a wild guess that you've never traveled to Jupiter or beyond the infinite, but you're still interested in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Sure. Or if I wanted to really kind of you know dig it in, I could say, I'm betting that you've not witnessed all that many crucifixions, resurrections, raisings from the dead, walkings on water, conversions of water into wine, <laughs> multiplications of uh, loaves, loaves and, and fishes. fishes, miraculous healings of the halt, the lame, the blind, the leprous. But you might still have occasion to consult the New Testament. Absolutely. We read really to enlarge ourselves, to, uh, you know, to gain knowledge through literature to expand our realm of experience and as my friend john lutz has been emphasizing uh to broaden our scope of empathy mm. and so but there's a but there's a but there's a third response it's a little obnoxious but i should say it because i'm a new yorker right so <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of expected you know we we talk about joyce as an irish writer we don't say he's a zurich writer he's a swiss writer despite how much time that he spent there, or that he's a Parisian writer because he spent all that time in the Hotel Lutetia in, in Paris living off of uh, Sylvia Beach's uh, kind largesse. Largesse, uh, exactly. Yeah, he, he's, a, he's an Irish writer. Well, McCarthy's a Northeasterner, and so am I. We have yeah. overlapping bloodlines. He's from Providence, his mom and his dad. Uh, Gladys and Charles are from Providence. My mom is from Providence. Hmm. And, you know, it sounds like I'm just kind of being frivolous, but you could say, yeah, but, you know, he left at the age of four. He did, but he returned. He vacationed with grandparents. None of us knows really how much of his time was spent there. And we also do not know how much of that lived experience in the Northeast became transposed into John Wesley, into the kid, into Satri, into any of his characters that we think of as, oh, well, now he's writing about Sevier County. Now he's writing about, you know, New Mexico and Texas. We don't know. I'll, I'll never forget the best acting teacher that I ever had. His name was Earl Hyman. Um, he's probably best known as having played the father on The Cosby Show the now disgraced Cosby show that we'll probably sure. never see again. But he was a, a really a great Shakespearean, a Chekhovian. He learned how to play Ibsen in uh, the original. I mean, he's a brilliant man, and um, he won an Obie for being in an Edward Albee play. And one of the first uh, scenes that I was doing for him, he said, Peter, you know, 
you remind me a little of James Dean. I'll tell you why. You think that you have to go out and absorb and experience life to its absolute fullest in order to play these roles. He said, I guarantee you that by the age of seven, you've had enough emotional background that you could play most of the parts that will be assigned to you. If only you could draw on what happened, you know? And I, I never forgot that. So it's presumptuous of us to discount the Northeasterner in Cormac, you know? So uh, we get into the habit of thinking, well, now he's, you know, he's a Southern guy and now he's a Southwestern guy, but we don't know. I mean, no. To shift a little bit, as I look over your shoulder, I see one of your paintings and I've seen many of your paintings online and I've been to a couple of the openings you've done that have coincided with our various conferences. And so I know you've actually focused some of your paintings as well as many other works of art on McCarthy itself. Would you describe kind of what led you to that and what you're doing with those paintings? I know we're on a, again, in a orally spoken podcast. It's not like people are necessarily going to be able to, uh, hopefully this will lead them to go online and look up some of your works, but uh, would you just tell us kind of your aesthetic there, Peter, when you work on these paintings? Sure. It's funny that you mentioned that it's a, it's a podcast. So your listeners don't know that uh, I put on a sport jacket for this session and i also shine my boots now and i can't even see your boots i can see no. the jacket <laughs> they can't see the boots and you can't see but it kind of relates to we don't know what goes into a writer's work from their own life and their own experience and their own imagination and uh, that applies also to everything that you do on stage Rolheim, and my first great acting teacher he said you know what when i'm on stage and I really need something that I'm crazy about and that I'm craving for. And it could be a woman. It could be a place that I need to get to. But I need a reference and I need a surefire reference that's going to work for me. I think of Hagen das Rum Raisin. <laughs> and the point that he was making is that the audience hears the lines. They don't see what's going on. And uh, I never forgot that. Yeah, that's part of the magic of, you know, I, uh, and playing white, for instance, in the Sunset Limited. I needed all of these references, and I didn't have to necessarily take them from the given circumstances of the play. I needed to find you know, what worked for me. But to answer your question about how it got started, the second time that I read Blood Meridian, it was uh, the second time that I read Blood Meridian, which is... Uh, the most important reading in in the early days was based on the fact that Rick was organizing the very first Cormac McCarthy conference. Rick had a friend from uh, Joe McGowan from uh, Fordham that he had met there when he was a student there. Rick's been a student in a lot of places and Mm -hmm. Fordham was, was one of them. And he was now president of Bellarmine College in Louisville. Kentucky. And they were having a conversation about why don't we have a conference of some kind? And I think the two possibilities were Patrick White and Cormac McCarthy. Mm. And they landed on Cormac McCarthy. Uh, Wade Hall, who uh, co organized the conference with Rick and who co edited that first uh, collection that Rick did, uh, Sacred Violence. Sacred Violence. Yeah. I believe he was the chair of the English department, and he had been writing about McCarthy going all the way back to Outer Dark. I remember reading his review of Outer Dark. Um, so he was on to McCarthy's genius from a, a early, very early yeah, early on. And uh, so it made sense that it would be Rick wanted three or four things from me for that conference. One was that he wanted to talk on Blood Meridian, which terrified me because I had written and published nonfiction. Uh, I'd worked on, you know, a personal memoir. But here I was going into the world of academia. I was going to be, you know, amongst the professoriate. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm artist guy. I'm art monster. You know, I can't <laughs> do what you, Scott, do and what Steve does and Stacy does and Diane and Chip Arnold. And, you know, I, that's not my world. And Rick just kept saying, I'll do your thing. Do your thing. Do your thing. And I thought, yeah, I can do my thing, but 
they're not going to want to hear my thing. You know, it's it's a very very different thing. I can't do what they're doing. But so you know, I did my usual working for six to nine months on this thing. I'm always in awe when I'm at a conference and someone says to me, "Yeah, I got to go up to my got to my hotel room. I I got to finish my 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 talk." And I'm thinking, <laughs> "Finish your talk in the hotel room? I've I've got I've worked with a stopwatch. I've done my <laughs> underlinings like Winston Churchill. I mean, you're going up to your room to you know. I'm 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 in such admiration that people can just toss these things off. And and I've made the mistake of trying to talk to you right before you give one of your talks when you're pacing around and kind of reciting things in your head, and you're like, "No, no, leave me alone." You know, I'm in the zone. I know it practically by heart. I've got my little, you know. Uh, I think it's the actor in you, though. It's a performance you're it giving. Is, yeah, I'm doing stand-up. I'm doing transcendental stand-up, I call <laughs> it. So he wanted this talk, which I did give, and, and it was published in that first anthology. Interestingly, I was right in that I knew that there would be a listenership and a readership who would say about it, what the hell is this crap? What is this guy, you know, what does this have to do with, he's counting the number of spits in Blood Meridian. He, he, he's reading the book aloud along with uh, a week on the Concord and Merrimack rivers and the Pickwick papers. What, how, how far afield is this guy? And, you know, John Wegner, who teaches in San Angelo, he was a young, uh, aspiring, ambitious, young uh, buck a grad student, I think, at the time, and he wrote the first review of Sacred Violence, and he ended the review by saying, Peter Joseph's essay on Blood Meridian has no redeeming value whatsoever. And uh, I remember um, Chip got a very sort of mediocre review from John, and so when Chip walked, Chip Arnold, wonderful Edwin Arnold, when he walked into the room, I shook his hand and I said, you know, I'm honored to be in your company that we were singled out for a negative review. The conclusion of that anecdote is that many years later, when Paulo Faria, who you've spoken to, that's McCarthy's award-winning translator, when he and I went to San Angelo, John was so generous in hosting us and showing us around and I took a lot of photographs for uh, Paulo's article in the Portuguese equivalent of, of the New York Times. And a lot of those photos are in the paperback of the Rome Reader's Guide to All the Pretty Horses. And John said to me, without ever mentioning his review, it was wonderful. He said, I don't know if I told you, but, you know, I, I use your work when I teach McCarthy. Oh. I thought, okay, he just had, <laughs> you know, he came around to, you know, to appreciating. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you one more just uh, anecdote. After I gave a keynote called Reading Blood Meridian or the Evening Redness in the West, no, Judging Blood Meridian or the Evening Redness in the West by its cover, and this was for an anniversary celebration of Blood Meridian that was at San Marcos at the McCarthy Archive in the Alkirk Library, and that was the first exhibition of uh, that was based on the acquisition of the McCarthy papers. So it was a big deal. I remember thinking, how did I get to be the guy that's up there? You know, yeah. I'm the song and dance man from New York. I'm the, you know, I, I, I'm the stand-up comedian. I'm the, after the talk, I got into an elevator with a Danish scholar who was a, a, a very well-respected Southern, Southerner, do you call no Southernist? Is that what you, which, someone who's, who specializes in Southern literature? I, we haven't called him that, but I think that works as well as anything else. Does. Yeah, I think that's yeah. what he called himself, Jan Norby, um, Jan Norman, I think his name was. I'm sorry if I'm getting it wrong. So I got into the elevator with him, going down, and he said, I see what you're up to. You're doing vaudeville but you know it, so it's okay. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a great review. I'll take that. Jan Nordby Gretland. Yes, right? Jan Nordby Gretland. Yeah. Yes, thank he, you. He used to uh, live here in South Carolina. I've met him a number of times. Nice guy and yeah, done a lot of good yeah, work. But yeah. said, so, said you're doing vaudeville. I'm doing vaudeville, um, uh, uh, which, of course, vaudeville means voice of the people. So I guess, you know. I'm representing the, the streets of New York when I'm when I'm writing about McCarthy. But so Rick wanted this talk. He also wanted readings from all of McCarthy's work, all of his prose, up to the time of the conference, and that included the Wolf Trapper. Hmm. The Wolf Trapper had been published in a special fiction issue of Esquire magazine. In fact, I have it here. I brought it out 
your readers can't see it, but it has Vandela at the top of the heap. It has a supermodel on the cover. <laughs> And she's um, on top of a, of a pile of mannequins. And at the top, it says Cormac McCarthy, James Salter, Richard Ford, Peter Matheson, Jane Ann Phillips, and Anne Beatty. And so my pal, Raymond Todd, uh, myself, and uh, an actress that we acquired when we went down to Louisville, we spent about a week rehearsing readings from each one of McCarthy's works. That's another thing that Rick had asked for. And it worked out really well. It confirmed my sense that McCarthy's work is very, very performative, even mm. as a reading. You know, it's great work to read right. out loud. Another thing he asked for was a poster for the conference. So I did a seven-foot canvas called Cormac McCarthy's Desk. I didn't want to do a portrait. I did his desk. And it got converted into a poster. And eventually, Rick just stole the painting from me. So <laughs> when you wind up doing your podcast with, with Rick, you'll probably need about six episodes just to get started. Um, you can add Art Thief to his Art Thief biography. Is long repertoire. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that that would be the beginning of what would become a whole series of exhibitions when he wanted another poster, I said, and he said, well, you know, what would you charge? I said, I won't charge anything, but just get me an exhibition. And that was the first the, uh, first exhibition of the series Cormac McCarthy's House. I think um, it was at the Centennial Museum in El Paso. And I think I did about 44 of those based on just a few snapshots that I took of McCarthy's then home in El Paso mm. on Coffin Avenue. Uh, I did a series called All the Pretty Horses, a Tribute. I did a series called uh, The Lost Blood Meridian Notebook. Uh, more recently, I've done a series called Billy and the Wolf. Huh. Uh, the answer to why so many, I enjoy working in series. I never have painter's block. I never have writer's block. That's why I call myself Art Monster. It's yeah. one of the few things that I can do, you know, I can produce. And I always tend to work in series. I'm kind of, as an artist, as a writer, as a painter, as a filmmaker, I'm kind of the ultimate non-definitive artist. I'm never trying to do anything, you know, monumental or final or, you know, uh, you mentioned one of my films is called A Few Things Basquiat Did in School. My book of talks with Richard Selzer, What One Man Said to Another. The title of this series, The Wrong Reader's Guide to <laughs> Cormac McCarthy, you know, of which there are already uh, at least three more that have been written. You don't title it The Wrong Reader's Guide to Cormac <laughs> McCarthy if you think that there's anything definitive or academically final about it. That old house once I never found that old house out at the edge of town now you can't blame it on me now I remember we drove out to see it burning you burning me There was a girl I don't know what for There was a girl up on the second floor Standing in the Martin Road No one to tell me to come or to go Mama used to work in the five and ten cent store. Smoke is everywhere. Smoke is in her hair. She's the one we'll have to tell you why. Like the secrets you have found. Burning me to the ground She's the one We'll have to tell you why 
such a long look down She likes it here when Gay Street is too much town She's got the moon and her best dress on The boys all watch it until she's gone In the morning you can find her sleeping in the lost Second life from me I hear it at night It sounds like the Tennessee There's another house on fire Deputy Sheriff wants to make me a liar Was it two McCarthy girls Or was it that's a, a useful place for us to kind of talk also about your books on McCarthy's works. And what I find interesting about them is, you know, the literary critic theorist Stanley Fish kind of tried to coin a new wave of literary theory in the 60s, early 70s called reader response criticism. And the idea was that regardless of what the writer tried to do, let's really look at how the reader has responded to it instead. And Whenever you try to teach that to students or you try to give good examples of how it works, it, it's always pretty much a dismal failure. I would say it's one of those theoretical approaches English teachers talk about for 15 minutes and then move on past. And it's not really been much practice, including by Stanley Fish. But if there is a way to do it right, I think it's what you do in your books. And I think they're occupying a, a very good, useful uh, middle ground between, on the one hand, let's say dense, not very approachable academic writing, which is often very useful, but it's often off-putting to much of the audience. Uh, someone who's just starting to pick up McCarthy, you're, let's say that girl at the carpet store that you guys bombarded with books, let's say she falls in love with Blood and Radiant and she goes out and buys the wrong work of criticism. It's not necessarily that friendly to her. Now, there are starting to be more books that have a lot of easier accesses. I think Steve's Cambridge Companion, you mentioned before, would be one such book with a lot of good essays for, you know, welcome to this world. But, and on the other far end of that is what we see in so much of with films and popular literature, which is really just fan service, which again, is not really that useful. As I tell my students, we could talk about Harry Potter and I could probably string together three or four hours worth of useful discussion over the whole series, but I can really talk to you a lot more about Blood Meridian than I could ever talk to you about the entirety of all the Harry Potter novels. It's just they're doing different things. And dense, complicated literary fiction requires complicated, nuanced discussion in a way that Harry Potter doesn't necessarily necessitate that. So and I think what you're doing is, is really excellent because you are delving into hard questions and the complexities, but at the same time, you don't mind pointing out this is something that works well, and wow, look what he's doing here. Isn't that interesting? And it's just a very, I guess in criticism, the writer always writes himself out of it, whereas you very much, as we see in memoirs and in, in first-person fiction, are just fine leaving yourself in it as a character who is negotiating these works by McCarthy, uh, either single-handedly or very often in conversation with various people 
um, such some of whom you named uh, Paolo and, and Marty Priola and also uh, Wes Morgan, the, your friend from Knoxville, who's such a giant help and resource to Cormacians and his uh, amazing knowledge of Knoxville and how McCarthy's works intersect with it and his, his own close, interesting readings of the novels. Well, it's funny. I mean, I'm tempted to just say, yeah, what Scott just said. <laughs> it is true that I'm trying to, uh, I call these things readers' memoirs because it really is a form of autobiography, but it's the autobiography of me as a reader. I'm not just talking about my life. I might be bringing my life into it, but it's it's not so much, uh, here's what I think that I can say to help you to understand whatever are the esoterica in Blood Meridian or Sutri or All the Pretty Horses. It's more, let me celebrate this genius by trying to render as accurately as I can how reading it has changed me and how reading it informs my life on a daily basis and how reading it spurs me as an artist to pay tribute to it. And I work very, very hard at creating a sense of nonfiction that respects the non. There's way, way, way too much memoir and autobiography you were talking about Hemingway earlier. One of my favorites of his novels is A Movable Feast, but it really is a novel. Mm -hmm. It's just lying. Uh, you know, he lied, Faulkner lied. They made things up, and we kind of accept it in their memoirs, in their interviews, in their autobiography, but I don't. For me, the challenge of writing nonfiction is it kind of goes back to what Earl Hyman was saying about, you know, if you could truly draw on what happened to you up to the age of seven. Is enough there. I don't need to, I shouldn't need to invent. You know, this. I've written two books about the aftermath of the September 11th attacks in lower Manhattan. Uh, I worked eight years on that project. I made a film about it. I wrote these books about it. The second one is still waiting in line to be published. It's been mm -hmm. finished for about 10 years. But, you know, when, when you're writing all day and all night, Right. Uh, you have a backlog and you know, you're know you waiting to get these things out. And no one was down there doing what I was doing. No other artist that I met was trying to render the, the, the aftermath on film, you know, alone or on the page. I could easily have invented a whole world of experience and characters and, you know, people that I met and so forth. Uh, dialogue that maybe I didn't hear, but it would have been interesting if I had heard it. I'm not interested in any of that. How do I render exactly what happened to me? And that's what I'm trying to do as a reader. But there's always a story behind the story behind the story. And so one of the reasons that, you know, I said it take me six to nine months or, or more than a year to write one of these pieces is that I'm always asking, what else really did happen to you when you read that passage in All the Pretty Horses that his father stirred? his coffee, mm. even though the coffee was black, mm. there was nothing in it. You know, what, what, why does that do so much to you? Why can you be moved to tears by it? Why does thinking about Sutri remind you of thinking about ground zero? What is it about its uh, immeasurability, its uh, incomprehensibility, its, uh, you know, hugeness? Say it properly. Say it, say it exactly. I always say, when I'm driving around on the Long Island Expressway, I don't have a fraction of the brain that my sentences have. It's because my sentences are made things. You know, if I write a smart sentence, it's because they've been built. I have to build smarts in my work if there is, if there are any smarts there. Mm. It doesn't come naturally. Um, I call it uh, coddling, which sounds like pampering, but I looked up the etymology. Coddling. It comes from sort of making soup and stew. It means to stir, stir something slowly and to make it thicker. There's a thickening that goes on in the work. And you realize, no, there's, there's a little more that could be said about that. Let me drop that in, maybe build another, another reference. Harold Bloom had a phrase, I think it's something like a deeper and more profound mm. subjectivity. I guess that's kind of what um, aiming at. And I know Bloom gets uh, a raw deal sometimes. One of the great, one of the best minds in McCarthy criticism 
but someone that you've spoken to actually once said to me, well, you're Bloom. He's kind of an inspired amateur. <laughs> and I thought, man, th- th- what, what does it know? take to be a professional? <laughs> I, mean, I, I just thought, you know, you read Shakespeare, the invention of the human. It's one of the great works of English prose and uh, uh, all of Western civilization. And you're calling the guy an inspired amateur. Why? Because he's not hes not using the jargon that's current? Is it because he's not quoting enough French philosophers? Is it because he's not interested in the, the, the gray beards mm. of the Frankfurt School? Is it, I mean, what my conversation with Harold Bloom, I, before I put it into my collection, I published it in a, in a journal. And one of the journals that rejected it uh, one of the peer reviewers said something like, well, Mr. Joseph really seems to admire <laughs> Mr. Bloom. And I thought, you know, man, you gotta, you've got to cut some people some slack here. Yeah. You know, no, this is part of the, what's so self-destructive about uh, academic publishing. I looked at this journal and I thought, forget about me. Just forget about this Joseph guy. You have an opportunity to have Harold Bloom in these pages, and I'm looking at the stuff you've been publishing, and you're resentful because what? Because he's a little too popular, or because you know I'm admiring him as I'm speaking to him. I'm lucky the guy is talking to me and treating me like a human being, and you know respecting my questions. And you're complaining. Screw it. You know I, 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 I'll take okay. it somewhere else. And you see that a lot. You see yeah. that an awful lot in academic publishing. Don't you want people to be reading this work? Does it have to be that way? Does it have to be that? Does it have to be that somber? You know, uh, that's why I illustrate my books. Why can't? Why can't they? Why can't criticism be illustrated? Why can't it be colorful? Why can't it be uh, amusing? Why can't it be personal? You yeah. know, why I said to Marty last night just before we closed, I said, you know, I can't. I can't write soberly and do justice. To Cormac McCarthy, I have to be dr- <laughs> I have to be drunk on McCarthy to write yeah. about him properly. I really do, and I guess that probably comes across. And I, and if it takes me nine months, then I have to be drunk for nine months mm. on whatever it is that I'm working on. Does that make any sense to you? Does that sound like no? It makes perfect. No, it makes perfect sense to me. And I I think anyone who's been in academics for a while, especially if you have been not let's say at the very apex of success or the nadir of failure, but somewhere in the vast middle, you've seen how self-destructive and how it can devolve into cliques of support and dislike and disdain and and the back and forth when really what it ought to be focused on is here we have a giant coterie of people who all love literature and love what it does for us and have great respect for art, if not always for artists. And so Shouldn't that unite all of us and give us things to talk about? And can't we be okay with disagreeing occasionally? But much of the kind of bipolar dysfunction that seems to characterize our nation for the last however many years seems to have also affected the academy as well. And and maybe it's a, is it a growing pain? Is it a periodic phase we go through? I don't know. I guess those are hopeful points of view because they presume it's not eternal or it doesn't get much worse and stay much worse. It, presumes that we go through these different phases. I decided a long time ago, I'm going to just not participate in it in those ways. And I, I certainly understand there are times when a certain theoretical approach is incredibly useful. And then there are times when it's also a way to demonstrate your knowledge and it's not particularly useful. And I think a good, a good writer has to be suspicious of themselves and suspicious of why they put something in a certain way or went out of the way to insert something. And, you know, it may just be to make an editor happy or because someone said something. And if you don't put it in there, they'll say, you didn't think of this thing and you need to, but again, who's your audience when you write this and do you want it to reach 77 people or do you want it to reach 7,000 people? You know, who's your audience. And, And I think that's very important for anyone who's creating art is who's it intended for. Because it is ultimately all art is some act of communication. And to pretend otherwise, I remember in graduate school writing workshops when I was on the creative writing end of things, and someone said, Well, I write for myself only. And he said, Yes, that's why you type it up, bring it to class, read it aloud to people, put it in the mail, send it off to magazines because it's for yourself only. If not, why didn't you just file it immediately after you finished it and, and just hold on to it? So when I wrote 
a piece called uh, Older Professions, The Fourth Wall of the Stonemason. And I think I said something like, kneeling is not the only position in which to admire a great artist. And so I really kind of laid into the stonemason as a basically unperformable piece for theater. I submitted it to the Southern Quarterly, which did publish the, ultimately it became a three-part piece, but I submitted the first part. And I was fascinated by the fact that because of the fact that I was being so opinionated based on the fact that I had been doing theater for much of my uh, adult life, they invented a category for it. And I looked at back issues and it just didn't exist. It was called commentary. In other words, in other words, Southern Quarterly needed to say, yeah, this is something a little different. This guy is kind of sounding off. So I didn't think that it was gold. And in fact, I wrote another section, which which is in uh, the book Adventures, in which I challenge my own views. I take this mason <laughs> to Paris with me. I read it out loud in Paris. I try and find uh, the flaws in my own critique. In a sense, you know, I, I say, well, screw you that you didn't, you know, like it. I mean, you're talking about McCarthy. Screw you that you don't think it's performable. I even offered to direct it at the Actors Theatre of Louisville. I figured, you know, that's another way of grappling with it. If I direct it, maybe... I'll find uh, virtues that I didn't find when you know I was reading it and writing that piece and so forth. Um, again, that's just another way of being non-definitive and trying to be honest about your reaction to a piece. Right. One of the guides that has been finished for quite some time is about something that you and I discussed the other day. Uh, however, briefly, the counselor about which almost mm. nothing has been written. I understand that very few people appreciated it, enjoyed it, and they get the sense that the, the world of McCarthy criticism would almost rather that it went away. <laughs> but it was precisely because I got that sense that, and and because I had a similar view to yours, which is that it's just such a troubling piece of work from so many points of view that I wound up writing an entire book about it. And I also brought Madi Priola into the conversation to, you know, um, and I worked on it for years, really. Uh, It's tough celebrating a writer by writing about what you think of as his worst work. Yeah. But, But again, that's just another way of admiring him. Yeah. Let me see what I think maybe what went wrong. Let me see what maybe Ridley Scott could have done in working with him perhaps he was too respectful perhaps you know probably not (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you know what i'm saying well like we said the other day there is a difference of course between aesthetic appreciation for something is it a successful work of art or does it succeed does it fire on all cylinders in the way that suchry and blood marine are masterpieces not everything is on the other hand something can still be interesting to analyze and perhaps analyzing it opens up pathways back to the the more significant works or to the the artist where he is at this point in his career and all that. And really one of the things you bring to the table is most of the people who've written on the the stonemason are not actors and directors of of plays. So you're bringing a whole different toolbox. You're bringing an entirely different toolbox to bear on what it needs to make this thing work than someone reading it as a kind of closet drama never meant to be performed with. They're reading it simply as a text you're reading it as a script. And again, and that's, I think, something that for you with all your varied interests that you bring a lot to bear that maybe other people wouldn't have. Thanks again to our guest, multi-talented, tirelessly energetic Peter Joseph. His books include The Wrong Reader's Guide to Cormac McCarthy, All the Pretty Horses, Adventures in Reading Cormac McCarthy, Cormac McCarthy's House, Reading McCarthy Without Walls, Liberty Street, Encounters at Ground Zero, The Way of the Trumpet, What One Man Said to Another, Talks of Richard Selzer, and The Wounded River, which was a New York Times notable book of 1993. Films include the award-winning Liberty Street, Alive at Ground Zero, Shakespeare in New York, Hell, Bard Talk, A Few Things Basquiat Did in School, and Acting McCarthy, The Making of Billy Bob Thornton's All the Pretty Horses. 
As a painter, his Cormac McCarthy-related exhibitions have been shown all over the world, including Sweden, England, Australia, and even here in the United States in such places as Kentucky and El Paso, Texas, and Santa Barbara, California. He's played many roles as an actor, including the character of White in The Sunset Limited. He's a frequent keynote speaker for the Cormac McCarthy Society, and he currently lectures on film for the Frick Estate Lectures at Nassau County Museum of Art on Long Island. And his songs for McCarthy Variations are included in this episode, including Wesley's song about Wesley Morgan, a Knoxville professor of psychology who has made such a quest of finding all the places from McCarthy's various locations, and this song was dedicated to him, and Sutry's song. Thanks also to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, and produced the theme music and interludes we use for every episode for Reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not reflect necessarily the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, although in our hearts we hope they'll follow along. Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may also enjoy a great American novel podcast hosted by myself and Kirk Kernut. To contact us, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. Social animals, despite the darkening land and the evening redness in the West, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Peter will join us again in part two on the next podcast episode, and the song following the outro music is his Sutri's song.
could go Find me a mountain, then I'd climb some more Angels in my hair Made me promise I would never care If you sons of bitches don't want me at heaven's door Might be trouble tonight Might be a hell of a fight Well, I'm a virtue man, so I'll let you name your vice I can't stand standing still Excuse me while I get my fill Just like dying, you don't get living twice Just like dying, you don't get living twice